4: And what did you have?
5: What was yours? What language did you speak
3: then? I am a revolutionary.
6: let about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us
7: and the possibility for us as a future person. Because
1: ultimately... Our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House.
8: African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action blo- auction blocks, put them in cotton fields put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America, No, 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 not God bless America.
9: God, our common ground with Janice Graham,
3: our common ground,
5: speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our common ground, a
6: higher ground for
3: discourse, discussion, solutions and ideas.
6: I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
3: Talk, talk
5: that matters, matters.
6: transforming
5: truth into power.
6: One broadcast
2: at a time.
9: And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham.
6: And good evening to each and every one of you. I am so pleased to have you here on Our Common Ground where we offer offer safety and truth as we see it. As uh, I always think of it is that it is the black truth of our lives. Thank you for joining us. I am just so pleased the rain has cleared here in in uh the upper plantation. <laughs> and I but but I like rain. There's a word for people who like rain. I like rain and I like snow and I like lightning and there's a reason why i like all those things and it really has something to do with the telephone people don't call you people are not asking you to go somewhere or to pick them up the world is very quiet when it rains snows and there is lightning i am um kind of on it this saturday evening and We thank you for spending your Saturday evenings with us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are going to, we've got a lot to do. And many of you always email me and ask me, how come your opening is so long? It's so long because the message is so long and it needs to be, it helps to get us in place. It helps me to get into place, to get focused. And, of course, some of my best friends are on CP time. You all know what that means. So we hope that you have your refreshments. Uh, I'm on water tonight. Um, Hope you have your branch bourbon or your A&W root beer or your, my favorite, Dr. Pepper, and that you have your chips and your hummus. Alpha, I know you are out there, and you are just ready to dip right on in into your hummus and and tabbouleh. I know you've got it going on as you recover from your very serious illness. And I can tell you, folks, I am so glad to report that he is progressing every day, that – He has learned to have tolerance and patience for the time that it is going to take for his body to heal, and we're just so happy you have no idea. For those of you who are new and you do not know who Alpho is, Alpho is the host of the Alpho Show. He's our political guru who drills down on the issues of justice and politics in this nation, and he does it better than anyone you have ever heard. Take it from me. He is found on our network, the Truth Works Network, and he will be coming back to his Friday nights as soon as he heals. And he is the vice president of Truth Works Network, but. I get the final say, so as soon as I say, it's okay. Uh, for our new listeners and for those of you who are not following us on Facebook, uh, following us on Twitter, uh, we want you to do so in order to get the information that you need. For instance, for every episode of Our Common Ground, I am posting reference materials so that you don't call up saying things that I have to remind you that other people can hear you. Um, So I hope that you will take some time during the course as we listen uh, tonight because this is Listen, Learn, and Liberate Radio at Our Common Ground tonight. I hope you will follow us on Facebook. There's another reason for doing that. Uh, If we ever... If I ever begin to do this 5 days, 5 nights a week again, it will have to be monetized. And in order for me to get grants from some of these black organizations, you know I got to say, "Oh yeah, 32,000 people listen to me every Saturday night. I can bring those 32,000 people in support of whatever you do if you support and 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 give us the the money that we need to make this a radio show 5 nights a week. I'll do that. I can talk I can talk 3 hours a night, 5 nights a week. Yeah, I can do that. And I can say that we have 65,000 or 6,500 subscribers on our Facebook page. If I can't write that in a grant uh application, I'm not getting any money. So you all better get busy and call your friends and call um, uh, Aunt Nene and them to, to to subscribe up on our Facebook page and start following us at JaniceOCG and Twitter. And all you have to do when you go to Twitter, all you have to do is retweet the stuff that I tweet or repost the stuff I post on on Facebook. And for those of you who do, thank you so very much. We've got a lot of work to do uh, tonight, and this is how it's going to go. Oh, a news item that some of you might be looking for. I know Alpha, this is really going to be right up your speed. Um, Suge Knight, the former, the founder of Bad Boy Records, or whatever the name of his record company, Thugs Gone Crazy, or whatever the name of his record company is. He's a huge rap. Uh, producer, executive director of the company that uh, Tupac Shakur uh, was in his company when Tupac was assassinated, uh, was found dead. Suge Knight was found dead in his jail jail cell today in Los Angeles. Um, It it was a small item that was somewhere. The other thing I do want to mention is that Serena Williams – She still is the greatest athlete in the world. Yes, in the world. Uh, We were sorry that she was not able to grab that Grand Slam uh, on on last night, on Thursday night, but, you know, that's. That's the way competition goes. Sometimes it was clear to me, and I hope it was clear to you, that Serena Williams was a, 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 a much more skilled and competent player. If you have followed her throughout your career, her career, especially over the over the last season, if you if you have seen her play, than Vinci, who uh, shut her down from this Grand Slam. Uh, I thought that Serena's knees were going and that the shadow on the court was getting in her way. Um, You know, people who play tennis pay attention to stuff like that. So Serena, uh, Serena Williams, we still, you are the greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. You are our, this generation's, Muhammad Ali. This is how we're going to do it tonight. We'll be reviewing and examining the truth about the policies and intent of what we know as the war on drugs. I'm going to play some clips. Um, I have borrowed clips from a documentary, which I very much think is something that you ought to take a look at and we'll give you information because you can buy the whole documentary for $1.99, $1.99. Or if you have Netflix, it's on Netflix for free. And the name of it is The House I Live In. And we also have adopted some audio from Michelle Alexander and others to help us walk through through, because we need to talk about a side of the war on drugs that we don't often talk about, the money-making behind the politics, how the drug war uh, can be considered a slow uh, genocidal policy on poor people, and the racial profiling for sheer government absurdity the war on drugs is really hard to beat after 3 decades that we were where we were paying attention but this war on drugs and the import having to do with racial oppression in this company in this country really began in 1857 Punitive policies, illicit drugs are more easily available, drug potencies are greater, drug killings are more common, and drug barons in this country are richer than ever. So we're going to be looking at some material, listening to some material. And, I mean, there are very few. You realize we live in a war zone, right? Everybody, all two of you who don't, hold your hands up and I know you're a little bit confused. Hold your hands up. It's okay. Nobody's going to we're not going to ju- we're not judging. But most of us, especially people who who have been with this program over the last 30 some years, been with this program over the last as 7 years that we've been on the 8 years that we've been on the internet live streaming, realize that America is a war zone and that essentially black people essentially black people are war prisoners how how I just want you to understand how many of you understand that i understand that with my elaborate educational credentials and and unique uh, and high-powered professional credentials. I wear a suit to work. I got, I got five black suits, and I've got maybe six gray suits. But I understand that I am a war prisoner in America. Any time that justice can be just stepped. my rights can be dismissed made dispensable and i can become invisible to the agency of my citizenship i am a war prisoner I hope you understand that for you new people uh, I, I just want you to understand that this is an issues-oriented talk program. We don't just talk about anything. We we stay focused. We stay focused to develop our end game, to understand from many different perspectives who we are as a collective. Uh, we look at our national agenda, but we also look through the lenses. For our local agenda but we keep our eye on our blackness about our people and we extract the I out of the discourse and concentrate on the we we live in a country we understand at our common ground that we live in a country that finds us dispensable, and sees justice simply as a convenience. And when it is inconvenient or it's an impediment to profit, it is sidestepped. It falls away. So tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be looking at the stages of how this war on drugs, which was really not a war on drugs. It was a war on us, and it was never about drugs. It was about who can we manipulate and use drugs as the machine. And we need to look at what happened in the streets where policies have produced just some bloody warfare. Not one of you out there, and I, I, I really challenge anybody to say that you have not been touched by the war, what we call the war on drugs. I don't think anybody out there listening can say that you have not been touched by the war on drugs you got a niece or a nephew, a sister or a brother, Uh, some of you might have a mother or a father, a son or a daughter, a nephew or a neighbor, or a best friend's child. You know, someone who is dead, has been damaged, has been injured, has been forever ever tainted by this thing called the war on drugs. I often think about my dear, dear uh, friend Kemba Smith spending four years in prison looking down the barrel of a sentence of 24 years without the possibility of parole. She never took drugs, she never dealt drugs, and she never bought drugs. Caught up! A war prisoner. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and the way that this is going to go is we're going to go right into this first clip to help us frame this subject, and then at the end of each clip, if we have calls, we'll go to our phones, but we have four clips to get through. So you've got to be concise. You've got to make your point, make your recommendation, and let's not try to make any speeches. This is our common ground. Thank you again for joining us.
5: You have to understand the war on drugs has never been about drugs.
10: America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. What
7: will you do when someone offers
6: you drugs?
9: We intend to end the drug
10: menace and to eliminate this dark, evil enemy within. Put him away. Put them away where they Three come right, on. Three
11: strikes and you are out. Somebody down the road said drugs are bad. Okay, there's no argument there. But think about where we are 30 years later.
1: I do what I have to do. I know how to survive. Yeah, I got some weed,
5: too. Don't let
1: her run. <laughs> I'll just, please, please, please.
5: The war against drugs is heating up.
8: I think they should have wrote prison guard on my forehead when I was born because it just fits me. I say he's a criminal. Let him go to prison. I have a life of thirty years
11: sentence. Twenty years for drug trafficking. I have life without parole for three ounces of methamphetamine.
8: Of the
9: twenty six hundred people I've sent to federal prison, I've seen three or four kingpins. We're
5: incarcerated four people.
9: Are drug addicts.
5: You're watching poor, uneducated people be fed into a machine like meat to make sausage.
7: Law enforcement agencies get rewarded in cash for the sheer numbers of drug arrests.
4: My Our money's ours now. That's my money now
11: scale is unbelievable nobody gels their population at the rate that we do all sorts of people get a financial interest
8: taser
7: gun manufacturers healthcare care providers phone
3: companies
8: you build a bed they fill the bed and you'll get rich and we'll get rich and we'll all be rich together
11: Engaged in a great experiment. What happens when you take large numbers of people, remove them from their neighborhoods, their families? What does this do to the broader community?
3: Mother,
11: the drug war is a holocaust in slow motion.
5: This is a war on all Americans. I think people keep saying, well, that's about them. Well, no, it's about you.
12: If you ask the question, why are some drugs legal and others illegal? Why are cigarettes and alcohol legal and pharmaceuticals in the middle and these other drugs, marijuana, you know, other ones illegal? You know, some people sort of inherently assume, well, this must be because there was a thoughtful consideration of the relative risks of drugs. And, you know, but then you think, well, that can't be because we know alcohol is more associated with violence than almost any illegal drugs and cigarettes are more addictive than any of the illegal drugs. I mean, heroin addicts routinely say it's harder to quit cigarettes than it is to quit heroin. So so it's not as if there was ever any kind of National Academy of Science that 100 years ago decided that these drugs, these ones had to be illegal and those ones legal. And it's not as if this is in the Bible or in the Code of Hammurabi. I mean, nobody was making legal distinctions among many of these drugs back until the 20th century, essentially. So if you ask, How and why this distinction got made, what you realize when you look at the history is it has almost nothing to do with the relative risks of these drugs and almost everything to do with who used and who was perceived to use these drugs. Right. So there was, you know, back in the 1870s, when the majority of opiate consumers were middle aged white women, you know, throughout the country, using them for their aches and pains and for their, you know, when the you know, time of the month and menopause and there was no aspirin, there was no penicillin, you know, lots of diarrhea because of bad sanitation and nothing stops you up like opiates. I mean, millions, many more, a high, much higher percentage of the population back then used opiates than now, but nobody thought about criminalizing it. Because nobody wanted to put, you know, auntie or grandma behind bars, right? But then when the Chinese start coming to the country in large numbers in the 1870s and 80s and, you know, working on the railroads and working in the mines and working in factories and, you know, and and then going back home at the end of the night to smoke up a little opium the way they did in the old country, the same way white people were having a couple of whiskeys in the evening. And that's when you got the first opium prohibition law in nevada in california in the 1870s and 80s directed at the chinese minorities it was all about the fear with what would those chinamen with their opium do to our precious women you know you know addicting them and seducing them and turning them into sex slaves and all this sort of stuff the first anti-cocaine laws were in the south in the early part of the 20th century directed at black men working on the docks and the fear you know what would happen to those black men when they took that white powder up their black noses and forgot their proper place in society you know going out first time anybody ever said that you know cops needed a 38 would not bring down a negro crazed on cocaine you needed a 45 i mean the new york times you know the paper of record reporting this stuff as as fact back in those days that's when you got the first cocaine prohibition laws. The first marijuana prohibition laws were in the Midwest and the Southwest, directed at Mexican migrants, Mexican Americans taking the good jobs from the good white people, going back home to their communities, smoking a little of that funny smoking, you know, marijuana, reefer, cigarette. And once again, the fear, what would this minority do to our precious women and children? So, I mean, it's always been about that. I mean, even alcohol prohibition was to some extent a broader conflict between the white white Americans and the not so white white Americans, right? The white white Americans coming from Northern and Western Europe in the 18th early 19th century with all of their stuff, and then the the not so white white Americans coming from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century, bringing with them their beer and their vino and their you know their right? I mean, it was all about that type of conflict, and it wasn't as if the white white Americans weren't also consuming. It's just many of them knew that when you criminalize a vice that is engaged in by a huge minority of the population and you leave it inevitably to the discretion of law enforcement as to how to enforce those laws, those laws are not typically going to be enforced against the whiter and wealthier and more affluent or middle-class members of society. Inevitably, those laws will be disproportionately enforced against the poorer and younger and darker-skinned members of society. So to some very good extent, that's really what the war on drugs has been about. When people talk about it as the new Jim Crow, in this wonderful book by Michelle Alexander with that title, it's about understanding that You know, the war on drugs is not just about race, and it's not just about targeting black and brown young people, because God knows, I mean, millions of white people have been swept up on the war on drugs as well. But it is disproportionately and overwhelmingly about that, from its origins to its enforcement to who gets victimized today.
9: You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham
6: and we want to thank you once again for being with us that gave you a pretty good uh encapsulation of the history of this thing that is called race um uh, war on on drugs uh but in its contemporary uh context in in 1986 the U.S. Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which among thing, other things created a 100-to-1 a sentencing, sentencing disparity for crack versus powder cocaine possession. And I know in recent times we have spent an awful lot of time talking about this. Um, but what we want to focus on tonight is the idea that um, – I, along with many, many policy experts who have been guests on this program, have claimed that there are racial disparities in the arrests, in the prosecution, in imprisonment, in rehabilitation programs, and other aspects um, of of this uh, war on drugs. And when I mentioned earlier uh, and before I get into this, I do want to tell those people who are listening on your on your smart devices, if you'd like to join others in our chat room, uh, it is open and it is available at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG where you can join, uh, join many people who chat with each other uh, during the course of the broadcast. What we need to be doing is looking at how we, how our families, the, you know, we need to break out of the denial that this is just about people who take drugs, people who buy drugs, the police, and and the Congress, and 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 some other people. That it is not about me, but there is not one aspect, uh, and I want to highlight this: there is not one aspect. Of this particular group of history, historical progression, or matrix that has not touched everyone in this country, every one of you who are listening to this broadcast, um, uh, and, and 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 along the way as we listen to uh, these. Uh, clips the audio from the documentary the house i live in we we need to keep some things in mind and that is one of them the other is earlier i i did mention the idea that we are all prisoners of war uh of this war um there is no doubt in 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 my mind and i'm willing to be challenged on this, if you'd like to call us at 347 838 9852, I'm willing to be challenged on this. But if you think about it, how do prisoners behave? If you take a look at the massive prison industrial complex and the people who are there, they are mostly black and brown people and mostly black people. 48% of all of the fathers, sons, brothers, nephews of black people in this country are either in prison or have been to prison and now have records which re, which prohibit them, become an impediment to them in restructuring, restoring their lives. Uh, they... This whole idea that felons in most states cannot vote, felons cannot benefit from public housing or any other kinds of federal assistance programs, that we send people to prison on drug related charges and sentencing. And we have no permanent rehabilitation and addiction programs. And the fact that your government with your tax dollars focus on punishment rather than drug addiction being a health issue and a public health issue. Because we have to think about the children. Of people who are in prison, our brothers and and our sisters who are in prison, that their children are affected as much, become prisoners as well in this war, and, and this is why I felt that it was important to do uh, to to look at these issues. Let me let me ask you a question: If in fact you accept the notion, the premise my premise, that we are all prisoners of this war. And you look at how prisoners behave inside in this whole complex, complicated notion of what this country has done with, uh, in regard to under the guise of public policy Mass incarceration. Look at the children that you you know you criticize those 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 kids who are walking the streets sagging. Now we have to ask ourselves: Is that not the behavior? Is that not the behavior of of uh, prisoners of war? Finding one way in which they can proclaim and take control of their own bodies and lives that can't be prohibited, but proclaims "I am me." Is that what what's happening? Is that what is happening in the music that young people enjoy? Is it is that what is happening in young people's seeming refusal? understand the code of behavior that you and I operate under because they are prisoners of war that's my question you know one of the things that I've been talking about and y'all are going to laugh just go ahead and laugh and get it over with but um, I have a three year old who is uh, a male my grand prince He has been potty trained in regard to urinating for months, but he refuses to give up the poop. And I am thinking that one of the things that he is doing is proclaiming his control. This is something that I control, because he clearly, I mean, he'll go in a closet, So you can't watch him have a bowel movement. The war, the battle is on when you place him on the toilet to do it. He's proclaiming, I'm controlling my own. And I think that that is some of the things that's happening to our children. Our number is 347-838-9852. And since we don't have any calls, we're going to go to clip two.
0: For the past 40 years, the U.S. government has maintained the same policy, total prohibition. Most of us take the drug war for granted. In fact, more than half of all Americans are too young to remember when and how it all started.
10: We must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs.
0: Why did Nixon declare his war on drugs? Thanks to the fact that Nixon secretly taped his conversations, we can get a glimpse of Nixon's motivations.
3: (sighs)
13: It was political and it was used as a way to go after the student protesters, the anti-war
0: protesters and the hippies.
1: You peel back the history. And this whole thing started from a racist perspective.
0: This is what Richard Nixon said according to Haldeman. He
12: says, and this is in the late 60s, right after the Civil Rights Movement. He says, you know, the, the problem is really the blacks. And what we have to do is devise a system to deal with that while not appearing to. Hence, it. the war on drugs. Well, you know, Nixon's such a mixed story because his support for drug treatment was really substantial and was admirable in many ways, uh, compared to everybody who's come after him.
0: But the other part, of course, was the massive crackdown.
5: Federal agents in Florida today talked up the nation's largest coke bust ever. While the
0: feds were busy cracking down on drugs, 11 states decriminalized marijuana, making possession a minor offense rather than a criminal act. And when Jimmy Carter was elected president in 1976, it appeared that the war on marijuana might be coming to an end.
4: I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana, leaving the states free to adopt whatever laws they wish concerning marijuana. A
0: 1978 scandal surrounding allegations that Carter's drug advisor, Peter Bourne, had snorted cocaine at a Christmas party derailed Carter's decriminalization hopes, and instead, the drug war continued to escalate elsewhere. When Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, he got tough on drugs.
5: Last year alone, over 10,000 drug criminals were convicted, and nearly $250 million of their assets were seized by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Okay, last time. This is drugs.
9: This is your brain on drugs.
0: And while taxpayer dollars flowed to drug warriors, Nancy Reagan spearheaded prevention efforts with her Just Say No campaign.
6: There's no moral middle ground. Indifference is not an option. We want you to help us create an outspoken intolerance for drug
10: use.
7: I am Mike Tyson, a professional fighter. You can keep
11: drugs out of your life and knock them out of society by saying no. Say no to drugs.
0: After being elected in 1988, George Bush got tough on drugs too.
10: Our 1990 drug budget totals almost eight billion dollars, the largest increase in history. Look, everybody wants to be cool, but yeah, with crack is just wrong. It could be very well. We've already transformed the national attitude of tolerance into one of condemnation. But the war on drugs will be hard won, neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block, child by child.
12: They want you to believe this is
10: some
0: kind of knights in shining armor battle of good versus evil.
10: I experimented with
4: marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and didn't inhale. In 1992,
0: admitted pot smoker Bill Clinton was elected president, and he got tough on drugs too.
13: We submitted the biggest drug budget ever. We have dramatically increased uh,
4: control and enforcement at the border. We supported uh, a crime bill that had 60 death penalties, including the death penalty for drug kingpins.
0: When George W. Bush was elected in 2000, he followed in his father's footsteps. And in the wake of 9-11, he launched a propaganda campaign attempting to link drug users to terrorists. You killed me. What?
3: There's
1: a bomb. I was going to school. What does that have to do with
11: me? you run, got drugs. Yeah, let's say it this way because it's more honest. Instead of saying, let's get rid of all these drug addicts and drug drug dealers and, 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 and once we put, throw away the key on them, we'll, we'll solve this problem. Why don't you try saying it to yourself this way? All these Americans that we don't need anymore, the factories are closed, we don't need them, you know, the textile mills are gone, GM is closing plants. We don't need these people. They're ex- extra Americans. We don't need them. Let's just get rid of the bottom 15% of the country. Let's lock them up. In fact, let's see if we can make money off locking them up in the short term, even though it's going to be an incredible burden for our society, even though it's going to destroy these families, you know, where these people are, are probably integral to the lives of other Americans. Let's just get rid of them, you know. I mean, if, at that point, why don't you just say kill the poor? If we kill the poor, we're going to be a lot better off because that's what the drug war has become.
14: My father was a war crimes investigator in Europe after World War II, and we often talked about his experiences. I was reading the work of Raoul Hilberg, who wrote about the destruction of European Jews and the Holocaust.
10: We've long known that the process of destruction was an undertaking step by step.
14: I realized that there was a chain of destruction that what he was talking about could be expressed by links in a chain around the world in more than one society. People do the same things again and again, decade after decade, century after century. Now this chain of destruction begins with the phase we can call identification, in which the group of people is identified as a cause for problems in society people start to perceive their fellow citizens as bad, they're evil. They used to be worthwhile people, but now all of a sudden, for some reason, their lives are worthless. The second link in the chain of destruction is ostracism, by which we learn how to hate these people, how to take their jobs away, how to make it harder for them to survive. People lose their place to live. Often they're forced into ghettos where they're physically isolated, separate from the rest of society. The third link, is confiscation. People lose their rights, civil liberties. The laws themselves change, so it's made easier for people to be stopped on the street, patted down, searched, and for their property to be confiscated. Now, once you start taking people's property away, you can start taking the people themselves away. And the fourth link is concentration. Concentrate them into facilities such as prisons, camps. People lose their rights. They can't build anymore, have children anymore. Often their labor is exploited in a very systematic form. The final link in the chain of destruction is annihilation. Now this might be indirect by, say, withholding medical care, or withholding food, preventing further birth. Or it might be direct, where death is inflicted, where people are deliberately killed. These steps tend to happen on their own momentum, without anybody forcing them to happen. I think a lot of people would be disturbed and outraged by the thought that any part of this process could be going on in America. But it wasn't until I began studying the drug war that I realized that some of these same steps were happening. For instance, identification.
10: All of us agree that the greatest domestic threat facing our nation today
5: is drugs. The way to take a problem and make it a huge problem is first you ask the wrong question, and then you'll feed us the wrong answer.
10: Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. You identify people, their characteristics. You make them other
11: using fear-mongering as if they're the cause of our problems. These people are killing our kids. These people are disrupting society. These people are wrecking our society. Secondly,
14: ostracism. Society learns to hate drug
4: users.
10: If you're a casual drug user, you're an accomplice to murder.
4: You apply special laws to them that don't apply to others.
14: Now, all of a sudden, these people who've previously just been identified as drug users
11: become criminals. If you break the law, you no longer have a home and public housing. The ultimate effect is isolation, being cut off from mainstream society.
8: We started out, we identify them, we figure out who they are, then we start making laws to prevent them from being around our children. You push them out of the places where they may be successful,
11: and so, where do they go? The area of the least opposition, the modern American ghetto. We manage to isolate the poor economically. You
8: force them out of the place where they could live and work and possibly be successful, and now you make them,
11: you make them criminals. So once the economics has done its business, then you can have different levels of policing. You can, you can change the rules.
10: You got a bench warrant, probably for drugs.
7: Hey guys, you know the program. Get the hands up, turn around.
14: Confiscation. Any property they find on you can be subjected to civil forfeiture. The money's ours
5: now. That's my money now. Federal and local police seized these vehicles after their occupants allegedly purchased cocaine and other drugs.
14: If we're seizing their property, it's really the simple next step to start seizing their persons.
7: Holloway was arrested on charges of resisting arrest and wandering with the intent to buy drugs. In the drug war, there's more that's being confiscated. Okay. It's being taken from them is all hope in a future. What y'all getting them for? The warrant we told you was my narcotic.
14: With the drug war, we've gone as far as the concentration phase.
5: My government says we're fighting a heroic war against drugs and the war against people who use drugs. And frankly, a lot of them are just going to have to be locked up. Extraordinary numbers of
11: people are in prison because of drugs, yet it is not a place to get drug treatment. They come out, and then we're surprised that we have the highest recidivism rates, and that results in this cycle of incarceration and overcrowding. This concentration of people whether it's in inner city ghettos or in prisons, create a culture of hopelessness that is incredibly corrosive. When they don't have any prospects, people turn to drugs. And then we'll pursue them, and we'll be able to hire a bunch of prison guards and parole officers and narcotics detectives and drug treatment people. In the short term, uh, some people have jobs.
14: Annihilation. That's not happening with the drug war in this country. But there are subtle but real ways that don't involve indiscriminate mass killings, such as preventing births.
11: $200 cash payments to women addicted to crack to be sterilized. Violence in prisons. Severe overcrowding sparked jailhouse
7: riots. 27 inmates died yesterday.
14: People swept up in drug war violence.
10: 140 drug killings this year.
7: An Iraqi war veteran was killed after SWAT team officers stormed his Tucson, Arizona home in a drug raid that turned up no drugs.
14: Now, it's important to remember or to realize it isn't that the war on drug users is the same as what happens in other societies, but that both are wars on ordinary people, people who are just like us.
8: You've got to have an enemy for everything. The way that uh, Germany in the 30s rebuilt their infrastructure, rebuilt their their industries, and rebuilt their pride, their nationalism, was by saying that these people, this group of people, is the cause of all of our woe, and if we hate them, we'll be better off.
9: You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice.
6: And there you have it. And if you do not think, as you listen to this broadcast, some of you are getting ready to go to church tomorrow morning and some of you are getting ready to play golf tomorrow and go shopping or do go around about your lives. Understand that you are those people. Unless, of course, you're part of the 1% in this country. All the poor people, all the working people, they are those people. And I have to disagree on one point, and that is that annihilation is happening. As this drug war or the war against us becomes more insidious, it has become more militarized. We have had a different kind of law enforcement transformation in this country since this war began. So here we are with an army instead of a police department who have tear gas, who have rubber bullets, but since January 1st, 2015 there has been 400 and 50 murders or killings by police officers in the cities and land and, and 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 in this country related to associated with a drug war that is being carried out against our communities under the cover of law and killing is acceptable at some point we have to become de- we have become desensitized and, and and don't get me talking you know over the last 6 years we have had judge uh, gray uh neil franklin who is the uh past National President of the uh, um, Law Enforcement Against uh, Prohibition Leap, Neil Franklin, at one time was actually co-hosting with me for a number of programs. We have had Tom Ash. We have had a number of people who are associated are and on the inside of this war, and it has ramped up since our police departments have begun to militarize. The reason that Michael Gray was stopped, the, and you know that the image and understanding of most American people at the killing of Trayvon Martin was that he was probably a drug dealer. The first thing that they did what, was was be able to demonstrate that he had smoked some marijuana, Um, So we have – this war has created a certain kind of permissiveness to wage, rage, and wage against ordinary citizens. Most killings that have happened – and police departments and grand juries have said, Oh, it was an accident, it wasn't intentional have happened because drug warrants were being served. You recall about two years ago our common ground voice, uh Barbara Arnwine, she was the uh she's a former she was then and is now the former uh executive national executive director of the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. A drug warrant was issued for her nephew, who did not live with her, and the Maryland State Police essentially tear-gassed, broke down her door in Prince uh, County, Maryland, PG County, and held she and her 78-year-old mother, for hours and tore up her house, destroyed her house. So the the, the those that they the, the those that they have categorized as the targets of this war on drugs is not as has been highlighted here been about people who buy or use it's been about all of us. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and we invite you to join us in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and to follow us on our Facebook. We're going to go for a break, and you can give us a call to discuss, make comment about what you've heard tonight, your thoughts about this war, at three four seven eight three eight. Nine eight five two. At our common ground, we help you build your consciousness. Now, whether your ego gets involved in all of this and destroys it is another thing. I'm Janice Graham, and at three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two, I'll be listening for you.
3: This is
7: our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one
3: broadcast at a time. Stay tuned.
1: layer up the mask off that we seem to wear every single day and to start to speak about our issues those childhood wounds and scars and secrets and and lies that sometimes fester inside of us because we are afraid to speak disappointments and and fears and that someone has hurt our feelings. So we're excited about it. We're asking one million people I Declare a Show is where we Deal with the difficult real raw right now. If
3: it's real raw right now.
1: Thanks for coming over. Now you better come on in to the home of real raw right now talk media. The I Declare Show. com. The I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult real raw right now.
6: com. The I Declare Show.
5: India Declare. Real Raw and right now.
6: India returns to rip the mic on September 15th, Tuesday, 9 p.m. The I Declare Show. Don't miss
3: it.
5: The following is a paid political announcement from Mr. John Chapman, chairman of the Mid City Development Plan. It does not necessarily represent the viewpoint. Of this station. Ladies and gentlemen, you ask, what are the Negroes kicking up such a fuss about? You ask, what do they want? Well, I'll tell you what they want. They want our jobs and our houses and our churches and our country clubs and our beaches. Now, down south, they know how to handle them. They keep them out of their schools and their parks and their restaurants. Up here, we gave them the inch and they took the mile. We gave them education. We gave them jobs. We gave them neighborhoods of their own. And what are they doing now? (laughs) They're demonstrating. They're marching up and down the streets and carrying signs. They're saying, we want full citizenship. We want full integration. Well, let me tell you this. God made them black because they are different. And no bleeding hearts and no new laws are going to change them overnight into white men.
6: You are the resistance. This is Our Common Ground, broadcasting bold, brave, and black. You'd better know. And we thank you, and we thank you for staying with us. We hope you're comfortable. We hope that... The tonight at our Common Ground, this is Listen, Learn, Liberate Radio. This is what radio was really made to be all about. I'm going to go in our chat room and see what they're talking about. And we've got Mike Blevins from, he's in our chat room. And of course, our um, staff member, administrative producer. Uh, Logan Michelle Odom is there, and India Declare from I Declare is with us here, and Perry Steele. Hey, man, wow. Uh, <laughs> we, hey, Alpha, we talked up Perry Steele tonight. <laughs> Good to see you, YJ. Good to see you and Janelle Burt. Uh, thank you for being with us and all of our guests. Uh, who are with us? Uh, we do want to give you an update in case um, you have not um, been with us. Alpha of the Alpha Show is progressing, and he is with us as well tonight. Our number is 347 838 9852. We're at the top of the hour on Eastern Standard Time, 11 p.m., and we thank you so very much. For being with us. We want you to stay with us uh, in this second hour. We're going to continue to look at this war on us uh, 40 years later. Uh, but we are also, we have a treat for you. Um, the first thing you should know for the month of September, our pick for reading is Between Me and the World by Tanahisi Coates. And you also should look for Monday. He has done a wonderful piece. He is the at, um, at the Atlantic Magazine. He's a featured writer there. And he has done a piece that's going to be published on Monday that I think that you will really, really like looking at mass incarceration. Uh, his new book, Between the World and Me, which I will be sharing with you um at the bottom of our second hour, I like to call them our second page um I will be sharing a uh, an excerpt uh with you uh from that book. The documentary that we are featuring tonight is the house I live in, and you can catch it on Netflix or you can go to their net you can go to their YouTube page and you can purchase it for one dollar and ninety nine cents and we do encourage you so much. Uh I have um been in touch with the um the uh producer of this documentary. He wasn't able to join us tonight but he will be with us in October. Coming up we will have with us Tanahisi Coates, Joy Reed, her new book Fracture uh, will be also joined by Tommy Curry um, and Ruby Sales. I enjoyed so much having her with me last week. She's going to be joining me once a month to talk about the issue of rebellion and liberation uh, as a concept for community development. We do want you to really look at these issues in the context that these are issues that exist in your community and there are organizations in your community all, uh there are organizations all over this country and if they are not you should create one uh if this is something that uh a passion that 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 is running through the village called your heart um i am my personal interest uh in the issue of how we dismantle this war and how we put into place reasonable public policy relative to drug abuse, relative to uh, criminal drug um, activity in our community and how our law enforcement officials are dealing with it. You see, I don't think that any police department needs to have a tank and some tear gas. I don't know if you caught the story, but in Virginia this week, I think it was about 3 days ago there was a stop of a couple, a young woman who was an officer, a naval officer, and her husband and their 6-month-old infant. And the stop turned ugly, and it ended up with 30 shots through their car killing both par- both of the parents. And the six-month-old is a survivor. These parents were in their thirties. This, at some point, we've got to say what is unacceptable. We've got to say it to our Congress. But you know, but the thing is that the, our Congress is made up of a, a whole bunch of psychopaths, idiots, people like Rick Perry and Donald Trump and 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 Mitch McConnell. These people, John Boehner, have no recognizable intelligence to measure problems in our country, to weigh them, or to construct public policy. All they need, all they, all they can do at this point, all they're doing at this point, is allowing lobbyists people who profit from the oppression of poor people to write policy and we're saying oh well you know i said to a member of the um the black caucus the other day i'm tired of saying oh well i'm tired of saying oh, you're going to be involved in, you're getting ready to. They're always getting, the Black Caucus is always getting ready to do something. I bet that they plan their Black Caucus weekend that's going to happen next week, next month. They do that all all year. But they can't plan to have a rebellion in the Congress that calls out some of this nonsense. And the other is that we have a president who at this point has pardoned low-level drug um, offenders but hasn't really gotten to the meat of the problem. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and we are here each Saturday, 10 p.m. Our number is 347-838-9852. We invite you to make your comments about what you're hearing, Um, whether or not the kind of information you're hearing, I I know for some of you it's not new, but the way in which it's been put in this context, whether or not it's going to uh, transform the way you think about this war on drugs, because you know all you black people out there are saying the police need to do something about these drug people. I mean... um, my mother god bless her soul my mother would call me and tell me about the drug boys that lived down the street um and um and they didn't have any jobs and they didn't have uh but they had cars and they stayed home and didn't go to school all those drug boys um and you know that we supported so much of this policy that these these policies that have turned out to be detrimental to every one of us because these policies are the policies that have made us prisoners of war I don't know about you but for the first time in my entire life and I have traveled when when uh I was uh camp uh, uh the camp a campaign consultant at one point in my life uh in Florida and I was on the Bob Graham when Bob Graham was running for Senate. Um when when I would have to drive through these little tiny towns in Florida and in Central Florida, you might as well be, in, that's Alabama, that's Mississippi, and the backwoods, that's what it is. Um, I wasn't fearful. But I will tell you now, when I get in my car, when I talk to my granddaughter, uh, a, who is a new driver with a new car, um, she's a young black woman uh, in a new car, and she always has her posse with her in her new car. It was a graduation gift when she graduated from um college this past may. Um, when I'm talking to my grandson, who is as tall as most twenty year olds um about interaction in the public, i'm fearful. I am very fearful. Okay, let's listen up uh, more on this 40 years, 450 million arrests and $1 trillion later war on drugs that was really never just about drugs.
13: While following the steps that so many Americans take through the world of the drug war, I couldn't help but notice that at every stage, Black Americans were disproportionately represented.
7: You know, in any war, you've got to have an enemy. And when you think about the impact, particularly on poor people of color, there are more African Americans under correctional control today in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. And that's something we haven't been willing to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what's really going on?
13: As it turns out, nearly everyone I talked to knew all about the impact of the drug war on black
10: America.
9: There's no question that the criminal laws impact disproportionately
12: on foreign minorities. Certainly disproportionate number of black people are prosecuted.
13: Yet while people could tell me all about their first-hand experience of this, very few had any idea where it came from.
11: We like to believe that the drug war has given law enforcement all these tools, all of this authority in which to pursue criminality and gangsterism. But actually what it did was, it basically destroyed the police deterrent in a very subtle and unintended way.
4: Going up to 15th Street in Dixie, he's gonna have some crack for him and some uh, oxycodone pills. Joe and I are both sergeants in major narcotics and we don't do uh, street-level drug deals. We do, you know, larger quantity cases. We're looking for the dealers and the suppliers. Okay, deal is good, guys. Move in.
13: A world away from Magdalena in the streets of Miami, I began to see the real impact of the drug war
4: on law enforcement. Start thinking about uh, why you're in handcuffs, and maybe you can help yourself out, okay? So what happened is to the second guy, he's now running on foot. Yeah, that's where we believe he might have gone in there. I guess we're going to have to write this up as a separate case. Totally unrelated to the original drug deal we did, but we stumbled upon a house where a couple of big stacks of money, a good amount of marijuana, that's sometimes how things happen. You know, they're not even planned.
11: Nobody respects good police work more than me. I spent more than a decade covering it, and there are a lot of detectives who I admire for their professionalism, for their craft.
4: Hey, what's up? Can I help you? No. No, sir.
11: The drug war created an environment in which none of that was rewarded.
4: Come on over here for a second. Let's get his ID. He's just cutting through the yard. Huh?
11: A drug arrest does not require anything other than getting out of your radio car and jacking people up against the side of a liquor
4: store. Probable cause? Are you kidding? I don't want to say a majority of the people, but there's a a good number of people probably in this area that are also involved in drug dealing. The problem is there's a real tendency on the part of law enforcement to think
13: geographically, to go throw resources at an area. It's fish in a barrel for law enforcement. Anytime you need to make an arrest, you troll through there. Everybody committing crimes in that area gets arrested. People who are in the area who aren't committing crimes get stopped. It makes everybody angry. Watching arrest after arrest, I began to see for the first time the destructive impact of drug laws not only on those they target, but on those who enforce them as well.
11: The problem is is that that cop that made that cheap drug arrest, he's going to get paid. He's going to get the hours of overtime for taking the drugs down to ECU. He's gonna get paid for processing the prisoner down at Central Booking. He's gonna get paid for sitting back at his desk and writing the paperwork for a couple hours. And he's gonna do that 40, 50, 60 times a month so that his base pay might end up being only half of what he's actually paid as a police officer.
2: most important thing right here.
11: We're paying a guy for stats.
4: can we leave them here and then we can go back out and do this other deal.
11: Compare that guy to the one guy doing police work, solving a murder, a rape, a robbery, a burglary. If he gets lucky, he makes one arrest for the month. He gets one slip signed. And at the end of the month, when they look and they see, Officer A, he made 60 arrests. Officer B made one arrest. Who do you think they make the sergeant?
7: As a criminal, you scarcely have more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. Well, here are some facts I uncovered in the course of my research um, for writing this book that you probably, you know, haven't heard on the evening news. More African Americans are under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised due to felon disenfranchisement laws than in 1870, the year of the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. In some major American cities, like Chicago, more than half of working age African American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalize discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste. They are permanently locked into an inferior second-class status by law and custom, much like their grandparents or their great-grandparents may have been during Jim Crow. You know, I find that when I tell people, you know, that I think mass incarceration amounts to a new Jim Crow. You know, I'm frequently met with, you know, shock, disbelief. People say, what? You know How can you say that? Just look at Barack Obama, you know, just look at Oprah Winfrey, you know. But the fact that some African Americans have experienced great success in recent years does not mean that something akin to a racial caste system no longer exists. No caste system in the United States has ever governed all African Americans. There have always been free blacks and black success stories, even during slavery in Jim Crow. You know, the superlative nature of individual black achievement today suggests that the old Jim Crow system is dead, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of racial caste. You know, if history is any guide, it may have just taken a different form. You know, any candid observer of American history, I think has to acknowledge that the rules and reasons the legal system employs for enforcing status relations of any kind, they evolve and they change as they're challenged. You know, in the first chapter of the book, I describe in some detail kind of the cyclical rebirths of racial caste in America. You know, African Americans have repeatedly been controlled through institutions like slavery and Jim Crow that appear to die, but then are reborn in new form, tailored to the needs and constraints of the time. Jim Crow replaced slavery. Mass incarceration, I believe, has replaced Jim Crow. The emergence of this new system of control really has been just sudden and dramatic. Um, In less than 30 years, the U.S. penal population went from about 300,000 to more than 2 million. Quintupled, right? The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like China and Iran. In fact, if we as a nation were to return to the rate of incarceration that we had back in the 1970s, you know, a time by the way that many civil rights activists thought that rates of incarceration were just egregiously high, if we were going to return to the battle days of the 1970s, we'd have to release four out of five people who are in prison today more than a million people employed by the criminal justice system could lose their jobs. That's how enormous and entrenched this new system has become in an incredibly short period of time. Well, I think at this stage of movement building, uh, my own view is that the first order of business is how can we get our communities to care about each other, right? That the first order of business is consciousness raising and developing a sense of care, compassion, and concern within the communities most affected by it um, before we really even begin to address kind of those mainstream white swing voters that we're ultimately going to have to persuade through our advocacy work. And I say this in part because one of the things that, you know, I've been really struck by in my own work on these issues is that, you know, with Jim Crow, African Americans were stigmatized um, but they had their own businesses, you know, they had their own churches, theaters, workplaces. There was a sense of solidarity within the community. There was a, a degree of racial solidarity in community. Well, mass incarceration has turned the black community against itself, has turned communities of color against itself. And I think we first need to begin to build unity and a common understanding of the nature of this system and kind of an agreement about what must be done about it. You know, obviously there's not going to be perfect agreement or perfect consensus, but I think the first order of business is to raise consciousness in our own community that no, you know, the fact that all these kids are going to jail, is not because they're just all hoodlums or bad kids, right? It's because it's a setup. Their lives have been structured in such a way that guarantees their early admission into jail, and we need to begin to come together as a people and as a community um, to begin fighting um, for reform. I think it also means, like I said earlier, trying to eliminate the stigma. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting in some of this ethnographic research is the reluctance of so many people who have been labeled felons to admit it in church that many people who have been branded felons won't go to church anymore because they feel they're not wanted there, that churches are a place where kind of the good people are supposed to go. And they feel branded and not welcome. Well, churches should be kind of the first place <laughs> that people can come to get support and their families can find some measure of support. Um, and I think there needs to be some community building and consciousness raising that happens even before we direct our attention to kind of those so-called mainstream white swing voters. So right now in my own work, I'm really interested in what can be done among formerly incarcerated people, their family, families um the communities that are most impact, impacted impacted by mass incarceration to organize and build kind of strength
6: and solidarity within those communities.
9: You're listening to our common ground with Janice Graham.
6: And we thank you for being with us uh tonight as we examine and take a look at the actual devastation, uh the the era of policies that have been put into place that conclude with outcomes that are not beneficial to those who have gone to jail, for those who have been uh, victimized, to those who have been terrorized uh, by uh, this war on drugs. African Americans comprise 14% of regular drug users, but are 37% of those arrested for drug offenses. And none of us can deny that the drug war has produced profoundly unequal outcomes across racial groups, and that includes African Americans and uh, Latin and Hispanics as well. And uh, this war has manifested through racial discrimination by law enforcement and disproportionate drug war misery suffered by our community. Uh and and I think that we have to get to a point that we are committed to exposing uh the disproportion of the damage and injury that lifelong penalties and exclusions that follow a drug conviction or a family that is torn apart um, that have been uh, created and and continues to create a permanent second-class status for millions of Americans. Our number is 347-838-9852 and we'll take your calls and your comments. on on some of these questions and one of them is how can we begin uh to recoup those things that we can the um because i really believe that the mass criminalization of people of color especially african americans Uh, especially young African-American men, is as profound a system of racial control as was slavery or Jim Crow um, uh, in this country. If you can imagine a 17-year-old who by whatever means finds him or herself convicted of, of, of a drug crime, in an adult prison, and what that means to that person's life, I really would like to to get your uh, your thoughts about this. Um, and this is not about Democrats, and this is not about Republicans. This is nonpartisan at the very core of this issue. Um, And I reject the idea with the, I mean, there is a war against poor people that's being um, perpetrated by the 1% in this country and funded by groups like uh, the Koch brothers and ALEC and corporations but this war on drug thing really has been by the misspent energy of a misinformed and a misdirected confused congress mayors state legislatures for many many years um And we'll take your call at 347-838-9852. Don't forget you have to to dial 1. We're going to let you refresh your your drinks uh, for a minute, and we'll be right back to our program. Tonight is Listen, Learn, Liberate Radio at Our Common Ground.
1: I mean, I get all kinds of stuff thrown at me. How do I stay focused? How do I have faith in my people? Because I want my people to, you know, come up and do whatever. But I'm telling you,
7: sometimes it is so tough. I'm like, you know what? Read my book. I, I think that um, all, of us, all of us are in the trenches, you know, and on different levels. Like I said, you know, I, I always try to think about whose shoulders I, I stand on. And I thank God Harriet didn't get too tired, you know. Um, and, and I think it takes it takes a great effort, and I think a lot of it is a psychic injury. I know we do need to take care of ourselves, and, and I and I want us to learn how to embrace and love each other and be patient with each other, and to understand how... I want to say this because it's very important, what we do to each other with words. Talk that matters. Speaking truth to others and ourselves.
5: Everyone has friends, there's online friends,
13: friends to go out with on a Saturday night, friends to hang out with and do nothing, friends who show up on moving day, and then there are the friends who will be there if someone is dealing
2: with a mental illness, are you one of those friends?
6: to be a friend. Suicide is a big issue in our community that we're hiding from. And I hope we understand that um, there can be some preventative things, especially in our families and in our work. We're going to go to our phones. We've got 901, you're on the air. I respect you at our common ground. Hello, Graham. Hello. How are you?
2: I'm fine. It's Perry still.
6: Hey, Perry. How are you?
2: Oh, boy. Good to
6: with us tonight. Yeah, it has been. What are you thinking?
2: Oh, well, I was just listening to what you were talking about.
6: Uh-huh.
2: Um in regards to uh, the drug situation. You know,
3: uh-huh.
2: prescription drugs kill more people than illegal drugs. And um, we live in a, a cycle here in so-called the American society where that if you can't make money off it, if you can't regulate it, then it's illegal. Okay, you got folks with meth labs, you got folks who grow marijuana illegally, but now we've uh, evolved to the point where marijuana is legal in some states. And uh, President Barack Obama uh, pretty much put a hold on Eric Holder And violating states' rights, saying that marijuana is a what they call a a controlled substance. So you got states that you know can actually
3: produce marijuana,
2: and Colorado is one of them. Huh?
6: Colorado is one of them.
2: Yeah, marijuana is legal
6: in Colorado
2: for personal use. Yeah, but they said. Yeah, but they're saying that in Colorado, marijuana has put uh, millions of dollars now into the state coffers, mm-hmm. millions of dollars, yeah. you know, and then using marijuana for uh, medicinal purposes, uh, you know, not every state, but some states you can go to your doctor and tell them to write you a prescription
3: mm-hmm. for right.
2: marijuana, especially in California, I know you can do it there, you know. So uh, I tell people all the time, you know, um, living under this white man's rule, and his social legislation with morality, and morality is sometimes warped, warped to the fact that, you know, uh, drugs are a psychological weapon used against countries. i give you a prime example. You remember in the beginning, what we call the origin of the United States and its expansionism toward the west whiskey you know was Mm -hmm. used against the Indians
3: remember the Indians
2: end up coming up with a a, a genetical uh, defect where you know they were susceptible to the white man's fire water you remember that right yeah
6: you know but one of the things too is that, and we haven't gotten into it. If you look at the records of COINTELPRO, if you look at mm. the records having to do with, you know, there's there's a, the the I can't think of his name right now, but a reporter at um, at the Mercury uh, did the report on how cocaine was being moved into this country by by virtue of CIA operations. Um, right now... And Ricky
5: Ross.
6: Ricky mm-hmm. Ross, that's right. And right now there was there is a, 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 an article in one of the newspapers, and you can find it on my Facebook page, where gang leaders are now saying that the government needs to ramp up on the war on drugs because it was working. Well, it was working because uh, gangs generally were people were groups that were moving drugs into the community. But uh, uh, there's a there's a lot to be said uh about how this disproportion of incarcer drug uh, drug criminalization has to do with the kind of drug, the level of drug. Hey Per, I got some other people on the on the on on the board. Uh good to see you, good to have you back with us once more. And I hope you'll join us next Saturday. Maybe we'll do some roundup on this issue uh, with Neil Franklin from LEAP. Perry Steele, one of our old, old fans, been with us for a long time. 855, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call.
1: Uh, Good evening, Janice, Uh, India Declare here. How are you this evening?
6: Good. Thank you, Ms. India, and welcome back on Tuesday night, uh, September 15th at 9 p.m., the I Declare show. What's your comment, India?
1: Indeed. Uh, Look, I wanted to, first of all, it's good to hear Perry Steele uh, there. Uh, I wanted to uh, thank you for uh, this issue uh, and basically peeling back the um, uh, the many uh, injurious layers um, of uh, strategic and deliberate uh, oppression and suppression of poor and people of color in this country. And until we uh, get really consistent and, and 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 serious about discussions like these where we can self-analyze like our role in all of this madness, um, mm-hmm. we will kind of continue to and um, uh, uh, remain on this treadmill. And I just wanted to thank you, really, for taking the time to dig in and allot uh, two hours of air time uh, to something that is so very important. And as you were asking uh, at the top of your program, uh, we have all been uh, touched by um, uh, uh, this uh, drug, um a uh, maniacal uh, uh deliberate uh, strategic uh, injurious web whether we know it or not or, or or what we've all been touched by this and um it's 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 very important uh uh that we continue to have these types yeah. of issue discussions so i just wanted to take my hat off to you and again just say on air as i've said you privately but thank you so much for supporting Uh, I Declare Media and uh, in the show, and uh, we're looking forward. I'm actually working right now while I'm listening to you. So I'm looking forward to uh, coming back Tuesday, and uh, thank you, Janice. You are uh, a true leader. Uh, Thank you very much.
6: Thank you, India, and we're certainly looking forward to you returning uh, on Tuesday night at 9 p.m. But, you know, to your comments, one of the things that comes to mind is that we have to connect the dots. Um, in this war on drugs as we incarcerate millions and millions of people 450 million people in the last 40 years um, Mm. we have to begin to think about the implication of that not only in terms of um, how we are empowering uh, private prison beds how we are empowering, that's one dot Here's the other dot, folks, how we are empowering the school-to-prison pipeline because of the prison demand by the, pri- the private prison complex, how we are mm-hmm. enabling the environment that incarceration creates for mental illness and our capacity to deal with that problem. Not only of prison mm-hmm. of young people who go to prison and 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 they develop post-traumatic stress disorder and other kinds of mental illnesses, but the mental illnesses suffered by their families, the health mm-hmm. impediments created by a mother at age sixty who has to watch. And try to maintain a relationship with her son or daughter who is in a prison a hundred and fifty or two hundred or three hundred or five hundred miles away. Mm-hmm. The stress that that places on that mother's health, existing issues that black people have and 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 native people have and Latin people have around diabetes and blood pressure and kidney mm. disease. Those are the dots that we have to connect. The The most important dot is the permissive environment that this war on drug creates, for the militarization of our police officers and departments, The permissive nature of shooting and not talking. The permissive nature of drugs, drug use by police officers. Mm
1: -hmm. And as
6: was pointed out in one of the clips, the profit that can be made by these arrests and then our desensitized nature of watching our communities destroyed because they were the drug dealers, they were the drug boys, they were the drug gang. It's all right to kill them in the street. You know, I woke up this morning, uh, India, with a, a cynical beam that was going off in my head and I I posted it in um in my uh on my Facebook and I wrote feeling a kind of cynical upchuck going on in my brain we always
3: declare mm-hmm. that
6: when a 17 year old boy is gunned down and killed on a dark night in Florida or a police officer sh- shoots an unarmed man in the back as though he's on an English hunt Or a young woman goes to jail for something no one can identify in a video never to come out alive. Or a whole black community flares up in a psychic cry of pain because one of their own has his spinal cord ruptured by police in the dark. Or one of our sons is murdered under law and his body is left to rot uncovered on hot asphalt we proclaim loudly. Never forget and then we always do. Thank you India so much for your call. I appreciate your And you know, if I could just say program. one more thing Janice in sure. regards to
1: that, just one more thing in regards to that with everything that you just articulated it, 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 it I quietly seethed as I ache to my bones and at the same time when we know that the young male walked in that church in South Carolina when law enforcement did uh, encounter him, it was reported that law enforcement bought him fast food before he was being processed. So w- w- we are witnessing all of this debauchery at the same time, and yes, we are constantly being injured by this, and even with that injury, we must, must, must never forget, and we must continue forward. And that, my sister, is why I love you. Thank you so much, Miss Janice Graham.
6: Thank you, India Declare, the I Declare show. Coming back on the air on Tuesday, 9 p.m. here at Blog Talk Radio. You have to catch it. We're going to go in the conclusion of this program. We're shutting down our phones because we're going to be, I'm going to be sharing with you some portions of the Our Common Ground book selection for the month between me and the world and tell you about some of the people that we have invited to be with us in this second session of the 2015 broadcast season, I am going to be spending more intimate time with you. As you know, for those of you who have been with us for years and years, uh, one of the iconic features of this program has been that we always have guests. Yes, and over the years I have had, I would I would say almost every black scholar activist author commentator thinker doer, parts of history um, that have lived in 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 my lifetime, some of them are dead j a rogers uh Amos Wilson. Um, Yusini Perkins Shakata um, and we're going to in this session not have as many guests so that we can get intimately intimately closer on some of these issues because we've got to stay with it here we are in the conclusion of our listen, learn and liberate uh, program for tonight
8: I think a long time ago, we made drugs into this huge thing, and we've made it so illegal, and we've made it such a a national issue with that tough-on-crime stance. I mean, you can't get elected if you don't profess to be tough on crime. First, we have to join together to ensure that drug dealers are punished swiftly, surely, and severely. You can't stay
10: elected if you don't do things to be tough on crime. To toughen sentences, beef up law enforcement, and build new prison space for 24,000 inmates.
8: You know, nobody can afford to be the first guy to say, wait a minute, we can't afford what we're doing, let's do something different.
13: I thought I would talk to targets of the war on drugs, uh, drug dealers and users and their families, and hear a horror story about this system that was out to get them, and how much the drugs had hurt them, but then how much the drug war had hurt them more. I thought I would get that from them, and I thought from the people who worked inside the criminal justice system, cops, jailers, judges, and so forth, I would hear the opposite view, that we can't lock enough up enough people and that these people are guilty and should be punished this way, and if anything, this punishment should be more severe. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. What I found was that, first of all, everybody I talked to was a victim, whether you were a direct victim of the war on drugs in its pointed aggression or whether you were a victim of having to do with your life the meeting out of that punishment. To be a cop in a system that is not actually just and is not actually improving public safety is to go to work hopelessly. To be a jailer within a system that incarcerates the poor needlessly and recklessly and destructively and does not and and, and leads to increased recidivism so that we see the same people revolving dooring back into the jail who you let out last week or right back in here. That person knows they are failing at their function. Their function within the system of corrections is not correcting anything after hearing so much about the failure of the drug war and the enormous harm it does i wanted to better understand what drives it far from the front lines of the war i discovered a vast and less visible world of people who in their own ways play a part
3: this chair in comparison to other types of restraint
13: chairs,
0: is the most humane the person in the chair can breathe very easily and
1: it's not restrictive
13: what we are seeing in our system of mass incarceration is simply the most strident example, perhaps, we have in American life of putting profit before people, of uh, having the prerogatives of ruling elites run roughshod over basic human rights and dignity. A member of Congress, in order to get elected, has to rely on two things. He needs corporations to bring jobs to his district, and he needs money in his party's campaign coffers. So in order to curry that favor, He looks for ways within legislation to constantly ratchet up the system into greater and greater severity so that those corporations can rely upon the steady flow of human bodies that they need to survive and to grow. And so it's a business based on the incarceration of your fellow people, and the Congress people are the ones who keep skewing the laws to be more and more draconian so they can keep a very reliant system of
0: profit. The thing with the war on drugs is, and the question we have to ask is, Not why is it a failure, but why, given that it seems to be a failure, why is it persisting? And I'm beginning to think, maybe it's a success. What if it's a success by keeping police forces busy? What if it's a success by keeping private jails thriving? What if it's a success keeping a legal establishment justified in its self-generated activity? Maybe it's a success, on different terms than the publicly stated one.
8: (coughs) I say he's a criminal,
11: let him go to prison. I have a life in 30 years sentence, 20 years for drug trafficking. I have life without parole for three ounces of methamphetamine. Of the 2,600 people I've sent to federal prison, I've seen three or four kingpins who are incarcerated, Four people who are drug addicts.
5: You're watching poor, uneducated people be fed into a machine like meat to make sausage.
13: Poor people in America are changing color in a lot of ways. More and more white people are becoming poor. There's fewer and fewer jobs. There's more and more economic disenfranchisement. And so as a result of that, you start to see a system whose complexion is... Uh, democratizing a bit. I don't want to pretend that it's now targeting whites on par with black people, but it is the case that what it's revealing is that it's ultimately driven as much by class as by anything else. And so I do think we'll see more and more of that in the times ahead, because what a nice thing for the drug war to be able to say, I'm not racist, and there's not really an argument for classist in the same way, and so it can just now start to consume new people.
8: You will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out.
13: The victory on Prop 36 was that we were able to find in California that 68 percent of voters were so fed up by the three strikes law that they've now voted in a change, that the third strike that's going to put you in jail for the rest of your natural life has to be serious or violent. And what that does is not only make sure that of the people who are now in prison. You know, some 3,500 will get their sentences revisited and no longer be facing life sentences. What an amazing exoneration that is. But at the same time, thousands more coming down the pike won't be treated unjustly as they were in the past. So it's a wonderful moment where California, which in many ways led the country into the darkness of excessive sentencing, can now begin to lead the way out by showing a step toward
11: sanity. Somebody down the road said drugs are bad. Okay, there's no argument there but think about where we are 30 years later.
0: I was wondering what your opinion was of entertainment aimed mainly at the middle classes, based on the drug war. So I'm I'm sort of thinking of The Wire, I guess, but I'm also thinking of shows like Breaking Bad, um, which are obviously very human stories, but they do take the drug war as an entertainment product.
13: I remember when The West Wing was a popular show on American television, and I would sit listening to people talk about The West Wing, and I kept getting freaked Are we talking about the real White House or the West Wing White House? And at a certain point, I got so upset about this because people would spend hours talking about this fictional White House and they wouldn't spend seconds talking about the real one. So I used to say, you know, if we would just take 10% of this conversation and talk about the actual White House, we would live in a different country. We would revolutionize the country in an hour because so many of you apparently have so much passion for politics. So there's an importance to shows like The Wire and Breaking Bad, keeping something at the top of everybody's radar and keeping it um and, and breaking into people's minds and breaking into their imagination. But if that is not followed by verite real reporting on the ground that then connects the real to the fictional, and then also by activism that seeks meaningful change and refers to the wire as just one more piece of evidence of the popular appetite for change, of the popular appetite for a viewpoint that's critical. These things have to be deployed to make meaningful change, or they become little efforts at letting steam out of the pot, and we feel we've, uh, we've done our politics and we can switch off the TV and go back to bed to a new day tomorrow.
9: Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Janice.
6: And we thank you so much for being with us. It is true, the war on drugs is a war against us. It was never really just about drugs. I hope that you have learned that you feel that you have information. The documentary is The House I Live In, available on Netflix and YouTube. Thank you for being with us next week. We hope that you will join us. I want to tell you some things that we're doing. We are getting ready for the um, 20th anniversary, um, the return of the Million Man March on October 10th in uh, Washington, D.C. We have reached out to Brother Minister um uh, Lewis Farrakhan and Dick Gregory to join us to talk about the march uh before October tenth and we may very well have to do a special uh in order to do that. Uh Tommy Curry is going to be with us. We have um we're extending invitations to Joy Reed to talk about her fra- her new book, Fracture and uh Tanahishi Coates. And as I promised, here is an excerpt from his book Between the World and Me. It is an Our Common Ground recommended for the month of September. It is actually a letter to his son. And you can find him on uh the at the Atlantic magazine. The book is Between the World and Me. Here is what I would like for you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. Enslavement was not merely the antiseptic borrowing of labor. It is not so easy to get a human being to commit their body against its own essential interests. And so enslavement must be casual wrath and random manglings, the gashing of heads and brains blown out over the river as the body seeks to escape. It must be rape so regular as to be industrial. There is no uplifting way to say this. I have no praise anthems nor all negro spirituals the spirit and soul are the body and brain which are destructible that is precisely why they are so precious and the soul did not escape the spirit did not steal away on gospel wings the soul was the body that fed the tobacco and the spirit was the blood that watered the cotton and these created the first fruits of the American garden, and the fruits were secured through the bashing of children with stove wood through hot iron, peeling skin away like husk from corn. It had to be blood. It had to be nails driven through tongue and ears pruned away. Some disobedience, wrote a southern mistress, Much idleness, sullenness, used the rod. It had to be the thrashing of kitchen hands for the crime of churning butter at a leisurely clip. It had to be some woman cheated with thirty lashes, a Saturday last and as many more a Tuesday again. It could only be the employment of carriage whips, tongues, iron pokers, hand saws, stones, paperweights, or whatever might be handy to break the black body, the black family, the black community, the black nation. The bodies were pulverized into stock and marked with insurance, and the bodies were an aspiration, lucrative as Indian land, a veranda, a beautiful wife, or a summer home in the mountains. For the men who needed to believe themselves white, the bodies were the key to a social club, and the right to break the bodies was the mark of civilization. You and I, my son, are that below. That was true in 1776. It is true today. There is no them without you. And without the right to break you, they must necessarily fall from the mountain, lose their divinity, and tumble out of the dream. And then they would have to determine how to build their suburbs on something other than human bones, how to angle their jails toward something other than a human stockyard, how to erect a democracy independent of cannibalism. But because they believe themselves to be white, they would rather continent, a man choked to death on film under their law, and they would rather subscribe to the myth of Trayvon Martin, slight teenager, hands full of candy and soft drinks, transforming into a murderous juggernaut. And they would rather see Prince Jones, followed by a bad cop, through, through three jurisdictions and shot down for acting like a human. And they would rather reach out in all their sanity and push my four-year-old son as though he were merely an obstacle in the path of their too important day. Tanahishi Thank you so very much for being with us. Don't forget uh, that Ruby Sales is going to be joining us as we talk more and read more from this wonderful book. I could not recommend it more. I'm Janice Graham. Every Saturday, 10 p.m., I'll be listening
3: for you.
8: You've got to have an enemy for everything. The way that uh, Germany in the 30s rebuilt their infrastructure, rebuilt their, their industries, and rebuilt their pride, their nationalism, was by saying that these people, this group of people, is the cause of all of our woe, and if we hate them, we'll be better off.
7: Well, I think at this stage of movement building, uh, my own view, is that the first order of business is how can we get our communities to care about each other, right? That the first order of business is consciousness raising and developing a sense of care, compassion, and concern within the communities most affected by it um, before we really even begin to address kind of those mainstream white swing voters that we're ultimately going to have to persuade through our advocacy work. And I say this in part because one of the things that, you know, I've been really struck by in my own work on these issues is that, you know, with Jim Crow, African Americans were stigmatized, um, but they had their own businesses, you know, they had their own churches, theaters, workplaces. There was a sense of solidarity within the community. There was a, a degree of racial solidarity and community. Well, mass incarceration has turned the black community against itself, has it's turned communities of color against itself. And I think we first need to begin to build unity and a common understanding of the nature of this system and kind of an agreement about what must be done about it. You know, obviously, there's not going to be perfect agreement or perfect consensus, but I think the first Order businesses to raise consciousness in our own community. That no, you know, the fact that all these kids are going to jail is not because they're just all hoodlums or bad kids, right? It's because it's a setup.
3: Thank you
6: for joining us here on Our Common Ground. Join us next Saturday as we talk about the solutions, the ideas, the notions of the liberation. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Don't forget to join us on our Facebook page and Twitter, Janice at OCG. Don't forget, Tuesday night, India Declare is returning on Vlog Talk Radio with the I Declare Show. Support independent black media. Thanks to our callers and to our listeners. And thank you for your support.